to be back in Revelation this morning, Revelation 7, a truly encouraging and hope-giving chapter, and so I hope that that will be our experience of it this morning as we dive into this theme of the sealing of God's servants. Now, just a quick review of where we've been and where we're going this morning. Uh, We've started Revelation about three months ago. Well, actually longer than that if you skip the Christmas series, but several months ago we started. I think this is our 12th week in Revelation. And as we got into it, we started with a great vision of the Son of God, and then we are led into seven letters, which we consider considered over seven consecutive weeks, regarding Jesus' words to the seven churches of Asia Minor, which we, as we saw there, they're not only applicable to that particular church that the Lord was writing to in those days, but also to our church today in all of God's churches down through history. When we hit Revelation 4 and 5, we are given two separate visions, the vision of God the Creator in chapter 4 and the vision of Jesus the Redeemer in chapter 5. And in chapter 5, in the course of that vision of Jesus the Redeemer, central to that vision is the Lamb of God taking the scroll out of the right hand of God the Creator. And as we described, the scroll was the, the plans of God for human history, especially concerning his judgments in the earth. And in chapter 6, we begin to get those seals opened. And we saw the progression that throughout church history, there will be these judgments of God that are in, unleashed on the world. They take many different forms. But as we saw the Lamb beginning to open the seals, the six seals that were opened so far included deception, war, famine, death, martyrdom and judgment patterned after what Jesus said would happen in Matthew 24 verses 3 through 9 and then we concluded chapter 6 with words that are eerie John concludes with the phrase for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand remember those words are also echoing what Jesus said in Matthew 24 When he said, because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. So there's this eerie ending to this prospect of judgment. Will anybody make it? Will anybody be able to stand? Because lawlessness will increase, will anybody fail to still be hot, to still be walking with Jesus in the midst of all of this, or will all grow cold? Well, the reality is is that many will not make it. Revelation teaches that. Matthew teaches that as well. Will anyone be left standing, though, when it's all said and done? That's why chapter 7 is written. The vision in chapter 7 reassures true Christians that they will, in fact, stand in the face of suffering because they are safe and secure in the keeping of God. Having looked at the first six seals last time, and Lord willing, looking at the seventh and final seal next week, we come to this kind of interim vision, this vision in between the opening of the sixth seal and the opening of the seventh, where God assures his people that while the six seals will and in fact are unfolding throughout human history, his people are protected and preserved by God himself. Revelation 7 answers the question, if the world is the object and focus of God's judgment, how will Christians survive? And we're given four 
and encouraging words of comfort this morning that in fact assures us that we, if we are trusting in Christ, will in fact survive. Because as we sang, he will hold us fast. So we're going to look at those four assurances this morning that Christ gives to his people through this vision in Revelation chapter 7. Let's dive in. Number one, Christians are sealed for God. The first, Christ, the first reason that Christians will survive in the midst of all of these judgments throughout human history is because Christians are sealed for God. Verse 1 of the chapter refers to the four corners of the earth and the four winds of the earth. Now, this points to the cosmic or universal worldwide nature of this vision, four being the number in Revelation that consistently symbolizes the entire earth and its inhabitants. Remember the four living creatures described in chapter 4 that represent all the earth and the four horsemen that we considered last time in chapter 6 verses 1 through 8 that are sent out into all the earth. The fact is that the four winds must be held back or preventing, prevented from harming the earth. And this indicates that they are probably the source of God's judgment against the world in keeping with what we've seen in chapter, chapter 6. In verse 2, John sees another angel ascending. He has a divine and gracious commission given to him by God. He comes with the seal of the living God, we are told which is designed, as we read in verse 3, to protect God's people from the seal judgments that are imminent. So look at verse 3, where we are told, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now, just to be clear, this sealing does not mean that we're physically marked. Okay, as in so much of the book of Revelation, it's spiritual. It's intended to be apocalyptic literature, which is designed and rooted in much symbolism. But the idea here is we're being marked off as God's possession. We are being categorized as the people who belong to him. But note, this ceiling does not mean that God's people will not suffer. Let's not forget that John has described himself in Revelation 1.9, as their partner in the tribulation. And Jesus told the Christians in the church in Smyrna to be faithful unto death, Revelation 2.10, given the fact that they were about to suffer because the devil is about to throw some of them into prison. You will also recall from what we saw in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, that many had already been martyred for the faith, and many more would follow, Jesus assured. And as far as I can tell, nowhere in the New Testament are the people of God ever promised protection from physical suffering at the hands of unbelievers or from the ravages of living in a fallen world. Tribulation is the normative experience for all believers. We've gone back to these texts again and again throughout this series. John 16, where Jesus assures his people that they will encounter tribulation, but take heart, he's overcome the world. Acts 14.22 reminds us that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Romans chapter 5 says that we will be living in the midst of tribulation. Romans chapter 8 concludes with a reminder that no tribulation can separate us from the love of God, which, includes, which in, admittedly assumes that Christians are going to walk through it 
and feel like it would, but in fact it doesn't, over and over throughout the New Testament we are given this reminder. In fact, 21 of the Apostle Paul's 23 uses of the word tribulation refer to an ongoing present-day experience for the Christian. The tribulation we suffer is great, not because it's a unique period, but because the intensity of the opposition from the world and the devil that we experience is huge and ongoing. But in the midst of this, and while nothing requires us to think of the great tribulation as a special period of time reserved exclusively for the end of the age through which only the last generation of believers might pass. All Christians in every age, though we face this reality of what John describes, yet we are assured that we will make it. We are assured that we belong to God. Yes, those who are alive just before the second coming of Jesus will endure great tribulation and persecution. But countless millions of Christians throughout church history already have. Tribulation is what characterizes this entire church age in which we live. God nowhere says that we are invulnerable to Satan's attack, but he does promise that nothing Satan or anyone else might or can do will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ. What we are reading about here is God's divine preservation and his divine protection. It's God's gracious provision that in the midst of all that we encounter, he will grant us perseverance. He will preserve us in the faith in the midst of the intensity of persecution and suffering. This sealing by God strengthens our faith so that the trials through which we must pass serve not to separate us from God, but only to refine and to purify us in our commitment to him. Notice that this safeguard is the seal of God and it's imposed on the foreheads of God's people. We read of that a couple of other times in Revelation. Revelation 14 verse 1, Revelation 22 verse 4 reminds that God's people are sealed on their foreheads designating his ownership. But I think it's interesting that this seal language is picked up by Paul elsewhere in the New Testament. For instance, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 and 22, we read the following. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 to 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, we sang about this this morning in our first song, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we require possess, acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So we're not told specifically in Revelation 7 whether this seal is referring to the, to the, to the Holy Spirit himself. But certainly in the New Testament, we are to think of being sealed with the Holy Spirit as being the guarantee that we will make it. If God has put his Holy Spirit into our lives, we will, in fact, persevere and make it all the way to glory. Thus, when we read in Revelation that God has sealed his people and put his name on our foreheads, we should immediately think of the gift of the Holy Spirit and his work in our hearts to mark us out as belonging to God and protected by God to persevere in the faith no matter how much tribulation or suffering we face. 
the reality of the Holy Spirit in our lives is God's means of preserving us. We preserve because God lives in us and works in us and works through us to accomplish his purposes. If God were just to some, somehow magically just put some seal on us, but we were left in and of ourselves powerless, helpless, we would not make it. We need God within us, stoking his gift, stirring up the power that he's given within us so that we might persevere. It's God's way of saying the gift of the Holy Spirit, you're mine. I'll never let you go. I'll sustain you and preserve you and uphold you in the faith no matter what the enemy may attempt to throw at you because you belong to me. That's the reason, brothers and sisters, that in the midst of all the unfolding of these seals throughout history that we're safe because, first of all, we're sealed by God. We're given a second reason in verses 4 to 8, and that is Christians are secure in God. We're not only sealed by God, but we are secure in God. Look at verse 4. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then we're given those in verses 5 through 8. I won't reread them again. But the question obviously comes up, who are these 144,000 who received the seal of the living God? Now, my understanding, as will be no surprise to you, is that the number 144,000 is, in fact, symbolic, as is the case with virtually every number in the book of Revelation. The idea is 12 is both squared, the 12 tribes multiplied perhaps by the 12 apostles, and multiplied by 1,000, a twofold way of emphasizing completeness. So the idea here is it's a complete number that's innumerable. It's a full number that can't be counted. That adding 1,000 to it is a way of amplifying the largeness and vastness of the number. Hence, what John has in view here is all the redeemed, all believers, whether Jew or Gentile, the whole church, all those who have trusted in Christ. Now, I want to offer that interpretation for three reasons. Let me give them to you. First, These 144,000 are called, in verse 3, the servants of God. Whenever the word servants is used in Revelation, for instance, in chapter 2, verse 20, or chapter 19, verse 5, or chapter 22, verse 3, it always refers to the entire community of the redeemed. That's significant to me. Whenever this phrase servants is used, it's always referring to the entire community of God's redeemed. Not just Jews, not just Gentiles, both and. Now, second, just as John heard that Jesus was a lion in chapter 5, verse 5, remember that vision? He heard that Jesus was a lion, but what did he see? He saw a lamb in chapter 5, verse 6. Well, here in chapter 7, verses 4 and chapter 9, or sorry, chapter, chapter, chapter 7, verses 4 and verse 9, so John hears this number of 144,000 in chapter 7, verse 4, and then he sees in chapter 7, verse 9, an innumerable multitude. Now, I think that's significant too, because just as the lion was the lamb, so the 144,000 are the great multitude. Okay? That's where I'm coming from. And then thirdly and finally, the 144,000 mentioned here are surely the same as those in Revelation 14, 1 to 5. I want you to turn with me there. Look at Revelation 14, 
And let's read verses 1 through 5 together. You'll, you'll hear similar themes and picking up on the same ideas here in Revelation 14. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000. Now I think that's, again, think about what I just said related to what John saw in chapter 4, or chapter 5. He saw a lion, or he heard a lion, he saw a lamb. So we're getting back to these images again. Stood the lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name on his father's, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. We've seen that in chapter 7, but let's keep reading. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. We've seen that in previous visions. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. Remember that from chapter 6 and 5? And they were singing a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who'd been redeemed from the earth. It's all of God's redeemed. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women. for They are virgins. It's these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. Again, speaking symbolically here. It's those who have, re- these have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. So, in both places, the people have received the seal of God on their foreheads in chapter 7 and verse 14. In chapter 14, verse 3, they're described as those who've been redeemed from the earth, or redeemed from mankind. And this echoes Revelation 5, 9, where the Lamb is said to have ransomed or redeemed for God people from every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation. And then this same phrase is used again in Revelation 7, 9 to describe this innumerable multitude. So this would seem to me to indicate that the 144,000 that John is envisioning here is the innumerable multitude, the redeemed of all ages, and not some special remnant of humanity. Thus, the 144,000 in Revelation 7 and Revelation 14, and the innumerable multitude that we're going to read about at the end of Revelation 7, refer to the same group of people just viewed from different perspectives. Now, the 144,000, if that's the case, are the redeemed standing on the brink of battle while still on earth. Notice the way in which this vision is structured. We read in verses 5 through 8 of Revelation 7. It almost reads like a genealogy. 12,000 from this tribe, and 12,000 from this tribe, and 12,000 from this tribe. What's the significance of doing it that way? Well, I think in part, it's meant to be a picture of a church militant. Genealogies were often taken in the Bible prior to important and significant battles. And so this 144,000... This redeemed people here are pictured while still on earth, while, as we will see in just a moment, the innumerable multitude that John envisions in the second half of the chapter are the redeemed enjoying their reward in heaven. So in verses 5 through 8, we've got the church now, armed, equipped by the Holy Spirit to engage in spiritual, not physical, spiritual battle. O church, arise and put your armor on. But in verses 9 and following, we are given a picture of the church triumphant, the church in heaven with God and all of God's people. Now, since they are the same group, those on earth in the midst of the battle, in verses 5 through 8, are assured of their ultimate arrival in heaven in verses 9 through 12. 
in 9 through 17. So you get this whole vision. All of Revelation chapter 7 is meant to communicate to a suffering church, you will be okay. You're going to make it. You feel like a beaten down small group of people now who are armed and equipped to battle the devil and the world and unbelief. But nevertheless, you will be carried all the way into heaven because you are secure in God. John Stott, commenting on this passage, says, Revelation 7 described two human communities. The first numbers, 144,000, is drawn from the 12 tribes of Israel. The second is a huge, unnumbered multitude drawn from all the nations, languages, and tribes. At first sight, they seem to be two distinct groups, numbered and unnumbered, Israel and Gentiles. But on closer inspection, it becomes clear that both are pictures of the same redeemed community of God, although viewed from different perspectives. In the first, the church are assembled like soldiers in battle array, the church militant on earth, and in the second, they are assembled before God, their conflicts pass, the church triumphant in heaven. So that vision is meant to communicate our security. The church militant will be the church triumphant. Two more. Not only Christians are Christians sealed for God and secure in God, they are saved by God. Christians are saved by God. We pick up at verse 9. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. So now John is gazing upon the church triumphant. From every tribe, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving, honor and power and might. There's a sevenfold complete worship blessing to God. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Now, what are they worshiping God for? His great salvation. That he has saved them. That he has kept them. That he has preserved them. Now, this great multitude that John sees are precisely the same as those in Revelation 5-9 whom Jesus has redeemed from every tribe and language and people and nation. So the reason they are here is because Jesus has redeemed them. Jesus has ransomed them. Jesus has paid for their sin. Jesus has risen from the dead on their behalf. Jesus has provided their forgiveness. He's provided their righteousness. He has purchased them for God. That's clear. So lest we think these people get to heaven by any other way, John wants to totally get rid of that idea. They are saved by grace. They are saved through the ransoming, redeeming work of Jesus Christ alone. Now, the language John uses, a great multitude that no one can number, sounds remarkably similar to what? God's promise to Abraham. Doesn't it? But amazingly here, remember God's promise to Abraham that he would, through his offspring, there would, they would be as the stars of the sky, innumerable. But amazingly here, in Revelation 7, 9, it's the church, Jew and Gentile, of all ages, in whom these promises appear to be fulfilled. It may well be then that John views the innumerable multitude of Revelation 7-9 as the fulfillment 
of God's promise to Abraham. And those who inherit these promises include all believing Jews, all those who have descended not just physically from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but have put their trust in Christ, Israel's Messiah, as well as all believing Gentiles or non-Jews. Now in verse 10, the saints attribute their salvation to two people. Let's look again, verse 10. Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. So this is a, a ref, referring back to Revelation 4 and 5, the two visions, God the Creator, Christ the Redeemer. They're the reason that we're here. <laughs> Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, who died to ransom us for God. In Paul's writings, this noun, salvation, or ver verb, saved, normally refers to deliverance from sin and guilt. But in this context, something more may be in view. It's not less than that. It's clearly that is in view, but something also may be more in view. John is describing that they are not, they, they've not just been saved by Christ's work on the cross, forgiving their sins, but they've also been ongoingly saved by God and preserved, and they are saved. It's the complete picture of salvation. It's the complete preservation and protection of God's people in the midst of suffering. God's salvation is the way in which he secures his sealing. He, he, he saves them ultimately as proof that he sealed them. So how do you know that we are sealed? We're saved. If you're saved, you're sealed. If you're being saved, you're sealed. You will be saved, John says. And this sealing and saving is designed to be a means of security, to safeguard their souls, lest they deny Jesus under the pressures of persecution. The focus of Revelation 7, 9 to 12 is the heavenly reward for those who do, in fact, persevere. And therefore, it may be that salvation that John is referring to here not only includes the forgiveness of sins, but also the preservation of their faith in the midst of trials. And for that, they bow down and worship God, saying, thank you for saving us. Now, fourthly and finally, is Christians are satisfied with God. We've seen that we are sealed, that we are secure, that we're saved. And now, in the last four verses of the chapter we read that we're satisfied, or we will be satisfied, as we will see. Now, as I read verses 15 through 17, I see no fewer than eight blessings that we will experience in heaven. Do you see those? The first one, verse 15, is that we will be before the throne of God. Now think about that. Who gets access so far in Revelation to the immediate throne room of God? Not humans. <laughs> it's angelic beings who are sinless. They are the ones who are given intimate access to God's throne room. And yet here, we are assured that if we are saved, if we are redeemed, if we are in Christ, we'll be there too. We will have just as much inner access to God as sinless angels do. We will have just as much access to the immediate 
presence of God as those cherubim who cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty and cover their face and cover their feet and fly before his throne in sinless purity. It's an amazing promise that we will be before the throne of God. Second, we're told that we will have the pleasure of seeing, serving him day and night in his temple. That's what we read in verse 15, serving him day and night in his temple. The idea is we will be continually lifting up endless praise and worship to our God. Third, we're told in verse 15 that God will shelter us with his presence. The word shelter literally means he will set his tabernacle in the midst of us. He will tabernacle over us and with us. God's very personal presence will be our shelter. Not only are we given access to, so to speak, the courtyard and the holy place, but we are given access to the most holy place, the holy of holies, where God's very presence dwells. You and I will quite literally live in, with, and under him in all his glory. I can scarcely imagine what that's going to be like. The fourth, fifth, and sixth, and seventh blessings that we read in verses 16 and 17 are all drawn from Isaiah 49.10. They're basically a direct quote where we read, They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them and by springs of water will guide them. Finally, we are told that God will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people will be taken away from the earth. Every form of physical harm or deprivation or suffering that God's people are, in, are called to endure in this life, God will guarantee that no such harm, no such pain, no such loss will ever be experienced by his people in the new heavens and new earth. It will be gone forever. Whatever your deepest desires may be, he will fulfill them. Whatever it takes to fill you and satisfy you and bring you to the point of overflowing and exuberant and permanent happiness, he will provide it. Brothers and sisters, this vision is designed to stoke our thirst for heaven. The Bible on almost every page speaks of the great satisfaction for which our souls long and were made. C.S. Lewis put it this way, there have been times when I think we do not desire heaven. But more often I find myself wondering whether in our hearts of hearts we've ever desired anything else. What he's talking about is the desire at the core of all human beings, of all of our desiring, that thirst that can never be quenched by anything we find in this world. It's a thirst that God alone can satisfy. Lewis calls this desire quote, the secret signature of each soul, the incommunicable and unappeasable want, the thing we desired before we met our wives or made our friends or chose our work or which we, and, and of which we shall still desire on our deathbeds when the mind no longer knows wife or friend or work, end quote. He calls it an unappeasable want, an unquenchable desire. And it's the daily experience of all of us to varying degrees even those of us in Christ, maybe especially those of us in Christ. Yet quenching this thirst, thirst eludes us for in every earthly well we try to drink it from. 
Try to drink it from work. Try to drink it from family. Try to drink it from marriage. Try to drink it from pleasures and hobbies and retirement and joys and thrills and movies and entertainment. Try to suck it out. Get something. Comes up empty eventually. Only one thing will. As Randy Alcorn says in his book, Heaven, we may imagine we want a thousand different things, but God is the one we really want. His presence brings satisfaction. His absence brings thirst and longing. Our longing is for, for heaven is a longing for God. And I would say our longing for anything is a longing for God. We hear this desire for God throughout the Psalms. Let me remind you of a few of them. Psalm 73, 25, and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth, there's nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What about Psalm 84.10? A day in God's courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. What about Psalm 43.4? God, I will go to God, to God my exceeding joy. Few have seen this as clearly, at least in our times, as Jonathan Edwards when he wrote, the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows, but God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the ocean. Now let me conclude. I want you to notice one key word in verse 15. And that is the word, therefore. Verse 15, therefore they are before the throne of God. It's John's way of alerting us to the reason or cause or basis on which these people are before the throne of God. Why are they there? Look back one sentence to verse 14. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. In other words, the only reason why these people or any of us will be before the throne of God and enjoy these remarkable blessings, this sealing, this security, this saving, this satisfaction, the only reason we'll get to enjoy any of those is because we have washed our robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Stop for a moment, everybody in this room, and ask yourself this all-important, eternally important question. If you are confident that in eternity future, you will stand joyfully before the throne of God and enjoy these incredible blessings, on what basis do you believe that to be the case? What is the ground of that hope? What is the cause of that confidence? To what or to whom would you point and say, that's why? Your answer to that determines your entire eternity. If your answer is, is this, I've lived a fairly decent life on earth, I've done the very best I could. I try to be a good father, a good mother, a good son, a good daughter, a friend, a good employee. I attend Heritage Baptist Church regularly. 
I've been really sincere in my religious life. I attended church. I was baptized. I even took the Lord's Supper. Maybe I'm a member of Heritage Baptist Church. That's why I anticipate standing before the throne of God. Woe are you. And woe was me, if that were my answer. If that is your answer, you are of all people most to be pitied. And we weep for you. I don't think there's many times that I go by where I don't have a conversation with somebody who knows I'm a pastor and immediately starts talking about how good they are. And it just makes me sad. I'm not talking about you beloved brothers and sisters here. I'm talking about people on a plane with or at a restaurant. And immediately they start talking about marshalling forward all their goodness. And I'm like, are you trying to impress me? I'm impressed. God's not. God's not. God would, I mean, that's not going to, that's not going to fly well. I appeal to everyone for the only reason any of us have any hope. The only reason anyone in any age, anywhere on earth, can have hope or standing before the throne of God is because by grace alone, through faith alone, we have washed our robes and made them white in the blood of Jesus. We have gone to Christ Jesus and said, Jesus, cleanse me from all of my unrighteousness and clothe me in your perfect robe of righteousness. And it's that that gets access to heaven and nothing else. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night at his temple. Why? Because they made their robes white in the blood of the lamb. That's why. They are there. So brothers and sisters, if you've made your robes white and you have in the blood of the Lamb, rejoice that you are safe, that you are kept for God, that you'll be secured for Him, that His seal is upon you, and you'll never perish. No one will be able to take you out of His hand. He will hold you fast all the way to the end. But if you're not, this whole vision is an invitation to you to come, children, teenagers, Adults, wash your clothes. You need a change of clothes to go to heaven. Everybody needs one. And it involves us taking off the robes of our sin and unrighteousness and asking Jesus to give us his clothes. Clothe us. Wash me. Cleanse me from my iniquity. Purge me from my sin. You are my Savior. You're my only hope. Have you done that? I pray you would, even now, as the Lord invites you to himself. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to you for this unbelievable, beautiful vision of the hope that we have in Christ. Thank you that we are not left in this world to wander aimlessly, hopelessly, wondering, if, am I going to make it? Am I going to make it? Am I going to make it? Lord, we are, we are given assurance here that if we are sealed by you, then we are secure in you, we are safe with you, we will be satisfied by you and we will ultimately be saved even as right now we are being saved and preserved by your grace. Lord, how can we respond but worship? How can we respond but to give you thanks and praise just as these redeemed are doing and will do and just as one day we will join that chorus again and praise your great name 
for salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. And we worship you for your great saving power, God. It is not to us, not to us, not of us, but to you and to your grace alone that we give glory. We would never be able to save ourselves. But we thank you that in Christ, we have all the salvation that we could ever want or need. Fill us with joy now as we respond in song and dismiss us with this confidence and hope in you. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.